Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, for the seven days starting July 5th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, the science of ice cream. I was in Vermont last week, and on June 30th, I visited Ben and Jerry's Research and Development Center. They call R&D Bizarre and D, by the way, in South Burlington, Vermont. I didn't talk to Ben and Jerry. I spoke with Derek and Eric, as you'll hear. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. And now, some really cool stuff, ice cream. I'm here at Ben and Jerry's, and who are you? My name is Derek Spores. I'm an ice cream scientist. And what does that mean? What's your background? Uh, my background is food science. I have a degree from the University of Wisconsin, and uh, it's basically looking at the chemistry, bacteriology, and a little bit of engineering as it all relates to food. That's a food. It's a degree in food science. Yep. And who are you? My name is Eric Fredette, and I'm a novelteer here at Ben and Jerry's. A what? A novelteer. Um, I work on anything that is not in a pint, so a stick bar or an ice cream sandwich. That type of thing. Those are all ice cream novelties. Cool. Derek, what is ice cream? Ice cream, in its boring generic definition, would be a frozen aerated dessert, which, which is a blend of dairy, uh, butter fat, sugar, uh, some other fillers, and flavoring. Is it an emulsion? Is it a slurry? Is it a solid? Is it a liquid? I know it's not a gas, but I can't figure out what else it is. Well, actually, it's all of those things. It starts off as liquid mix. Uh, there's government regulations as to what constitutes ice cream. You have to have a certain level of total milk solids, as we call them. You have to have a certain level of milk fat. Uh, you have to have a certain weight per gallon. There's a lot of little rules about it, but it starts off as a liquid blend of cream, milk, sugar, egg yolks, stabilizers, and that is frozen, and air is injected when it's frozen. So it's actually a fat and water uh, liquid that is then turned into a, a three-phase emulsion when we add air to it. A three-phase emulsion. So it's liquid, gas, and solid all at once. It is, because you'd never have all of your water frozen. So there is some, even at any temperature, there's some liquid phase still that's still moving around because the whole thing doesn't reach the glassy state. Uh, there's certainly frozen ice particles, and there's air, air cells as well. What difference does it make what temperature I eat my ice cream at? What temperature you eat it at doesn't matter a whole lot for preference. What temperatures we produce it at, ship it at, and store it at do make a big difference. Tell me more about that. When you make ice cream, you are creating ice crystals. The only place that you actually create ice crystals is in the ice cream freezer. Everything that happens to ice cream after that only makes the ice crystals bigger. The amount of ice crystals you form is dependent on the formulation of the ice cream, how much water you have in there and what your freezing point is at. So the colder we freeze it out of our freezers, the more ice crystals we form. That seems counterintuitive, but we actually want to have as many ice crystals as possible because the more we have, then the average size is much smaller. Uh -huh. You're going to have ice crystals in your ice cream because it's mostly water and it's frozen. So our goal is to keep them as many as possible and as small as possible. Because the bigger ones change the, the consistency. The, once they get to a certain size, they're detectable on your tongue, and that's when you have coarse or icy ice cream. Right. So for smoothness, you want a lot of little ice crystals. Right. And as the product becomes abused, as the temperature rises up, the smaller ice crystals will melt. When it cools back down, they don't refreeze into their own ice crystal because they're only formed in the freezer. They'll refreeze to a a bigger existing ice crystal that hadn't melted already. 
So this is, it's called Oswald ripening. The small crystals get smaller and the big crystals get bigger. And this is what happens at home when you've taken a container out and put it back in the freezer a bunch of times? Exactly. The container that you leave sitting on your refrigerator or on your freezer door uh, is probably the worst spot to keep ice cream because it has air rushing by it every time you open and close it. It's great heat transfer. Uh, it's the warmest part of your freezer. So every time you warm it up, you're melting some of your smaller ice crystals. When you freeze it back down, it's not refreezing into its own. It's attaching to a bigger one. So you should put the ice cream deep in the freezer at home. If you want to keep it for a long time. Fortunately, ours comes in a pint, and I don't think many people get more than one serving out of it so ours is pretty safe but uh, if you buy in a big container the colder you can keep it the longer it'll last. I was under the impression that the temperature that the ice cream was served at would affect its taste because of the volatility of some of the oils in there. But it will have some impact. It's really more of personal preference, though. Um, ice cream being so cold, you don't get a lot of difference for as volatiles coming off. Ice cream isn't a product that smells a lot. That does ha certainly have some smell to it. Because so much of, of what we think of as taste is related to smell. You're probably the right guy to talk about that. This is Eric. Yes, the, the taste of your olfactory plays a huge part in taste because of the way you're... you're buds and everything are set up and it really the you smell something first usually before you taste it as you lift it to your mouth so absolutely smell is a huge part of, of tasting especially a stronger flavor of ice cream something strawberry you'll smell it first before you get it to your mouth blueberry but since it's also cold anyway it's not you don't have the same factor for smell as you would in, in room temperature or hot foods. No, I mean, even something as volatile as vanilla, um, when you're talking about the difference of maybe serving at zero degrees Fahrenheit versus 10 degrees Fahrenheit, you're not really giving off a lot more vapor pressure for you to be able to smell it more. Where your olfactory comes in for ice cream is when it starts to melt in your mouth and it kind of gets kicked up into your nasal passages. And then the, then the smell plays more of a factor. What are some of the more interesting scientific challenges that you have in producing ice cream? Well, I think when you run into the most problems is when you're trying to take something out of ice cream. If you're just starting with a whole lot of cream, a whole lot of milk, a little bit of sugar and some egg yolks like our regular product, um, that's really, I mean, it's a scientist's dream to work on because everything is very well balanced. It just works itself out. Now, let's say you want to take carbohydrates out of an ice cream, a low-carb ice cream. Then you have some big challenges because you have to have a certain amount of total solids to have the right mouthfeel. And you also need to have the right freezing point depressant. So carbohydrates tend to be kind of simple, smaller molecules that will depress the freezing point a whole lot more than like a large fiber molecule. When I take all of those out, I really need to drop the freezing point somehow. So I need to find things that aren't carbohydrates that have tiny molecular weights to really drop that freezing point down. Uh, these are the time, those are the things that are the most difficult to work with. So small proteins, what do you, what do you put in there instead? Sugar alcohols are the primary one, things like sorbitol or glycerin. Glycerin is the most popular because it's only about uh, molecular weight of, I think around 99, where your average sucrose molecule will have about 342 uh, for a molecular weight. So you get a little more than three times the freezing point depressant out of glycerin as you would with sugar on a pound for pound basis. Right, because the freezing point's a function of just the number of particles. Right, the number of molecules. So it's not about the mass that goes in, it's the number of molecules. So the smaller molecular weight for a single pound, you're going to add a lot more to it. This will also create a whole bunch of other issues with low-carb ice creams because sugar alcohols tend to have a very uh, positive 
or negative heat of solution. So glycerin has a very positive heat of solution. If you add too much to it, you get what's called glycerin burn, and your tongue will actually start to warm up. So then you need to balance that out with something with a negative heat of solution, like sorbitol has a very negative heat of solution. So by combining uh, the right combination of glycerin and sorbitol, I can get my freezing point right and my heat of solution correct. Wow, that's the most interesting thing from a scientific <laughs> point of view about ice cream I've ever heard. <laughs> it can get pretty in-depth. Heat of solution, explain that a little bit. Heat of solution is basically, uh, in, its, in the most basic sense, would be does it make your mouth feel warm or cold? Things like uh, if you were to eat a mint and it has a very cooling effect on right. your mouth, that's something that has a negative heat of solution. As the particles come into solution, it's, it, is, it has a cooling effect on your mouth. As a novel tier, now you, tell me about your background a little bit. You have a serious food background. My degree is in culinary arts. Um, so, yeah, I, I have a food background. I've worked in restaurants and hotels in the Boston area and around Burlington here where, where we live. This is Eric, by the way. That was Derek. This is Eric. It's not a British comedy act. It's Eric and Derek at Ben and Jerry's. So, so tell so, me more about Sometimes it is a comedy sometimes act. Sometimes it is a comedy act. I had the key lime pie, the new flavor, the other night. Did you help develop that? I did. Because I'm a big key lime pie guy, and it's, it's excellent. It really is. And, and the, the, the big thing about the, with the key lime pie is the, the variegate, the swirl in that ice cream is lime curd, which is so close to the filling of an actual key lime pie. The ingredients are very similar. Egg yolks, cream, lime juice. And by swirling that in and putting pie pieces in, it creates the experience. It's, it's exactly how you remember key lime pie to be when you eat it. What's the challenge for you in, in trying to do something like that? There are obviously going to be places where you cannot use the same materials because it might have been something that was in a hot food. Or I don't know if that's an example. I'm just, that's off the top of my head. But you have challenges to kind of recreate a taste in ice cream where ice cream is not the original kind of home for that taste. So what kind of challenges do you face there? One of the challenges that we face, and you've heard Derek talk about balance in the, in the mix and solids and fats and all of that. Uh, one of the challenges is adding things to the basic mix that have sugar in them. It throws off the balance of the finished product. So some items will heat shock better than others. If you add a lot of sugar, if you add caramel to the background of an ice cream, you're adding a bunch of sugar, which throws the balance off, which means every time you open and close that freezer door, your ice crystals are more likely to get bigger faster than in a vanilla ice cream where you're not adding sugar to the base mix. Heat shock has a very specific meaning in, in biology. I don't think it has the same meaning here. What, it, what does it mean when you use it? Heat shock for us is, is every time that ice cream warms up and, and refreezes. Okay. So it's, it's uh, a shock when you open the freezer door, when it's sitting on the counter, when you put it in the microwave, you know, everyone's done it. You know, it's, that's, creates that instant heat to the ice cream and then you refreeze it and that's what we consider heat shock. So impatience is a really bad idea for, uh, for ice cream consumers. Yes. Let it warm up a little naturally. Right. If you can pull it out and just leave it on the counter for a few minutes. Right. If you, can, you can possibly bring you yourself to do that. Hold out. It's better that way. Another serving of ice cream science right after this. For breaking news about science and technology, visit www.siam.com news today. 
I know sometimes in New York, we, we pull um, pints of ice cream out of convenience store freezers that have been in there, I think, since mammoths were licking them in the first place. Um, but if it's been very cold for, you know, if it's been in there for six months, is that going to matter at all? It matters. It depends on the cycle of the freezer. So if the freezer is on a cycle where it defrosts uh-huh. three or four times a day, that causes heat shock to the product. In a storage freezer, like our facilities, we store at minus 20. So it keeps an even temperature. It's always minus 20. We can keep ice cream. We've eaten ice cream a year and a half after its manufacture. If it's kept at minus 20, it's still good. Minus 20 centigrade Fahrenheit? Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. Okay. We, uh, this is, we're going back to Derek. We test all of our products. We have uh, what's called an environmental chamber that has a real basic temperature fluctuation program on it. So in about two weeks, uh, we can simulate about one year of shelf life uh, for the finished product through normal distribution. But it's, you know, the year is dependent on what type of temperatures it's exposed to. So if you have something that's completely melted down and then refrozen, its shelf life is about a week, uh, where you can have, like Eric said, if its temperature is very cold, you don't have a lot of ice crystals melting and refreezing, it can last for years. What's going on when I pull out a pint of ice cream, I'm lying, when I pull out a half gallon of ice cream from my freezer at home, and I open it up, and it's been in there for a while, and I've got these ice crystals that have just grown all over the thing. Now, that's obviously more than just a a consolidation of the little ice crystals that were in there. So it's picking up moisture from inside the freezer and adding that to the crystallization. It could be adding some to it, but a lot of it, in fact, most of it probably is from the product. If ice cream is 38 to 42% solids, that means it's almost 60% water. So you have a lot of water in ice cream. All of the ingredients, milk, the main ingredient of milk is water. Main ingredient of cream is water. So everything that we're adding, it's Primarily water, so there's an awful lot of ice that you can grow in there. So I'm drawing the water out of the of the mix, and it's forming these ice crystals that are at the top of the container. Yeah, uh, and some of you know evaporation occurs at any temperature. So some of it, if you have eaten down a little bit and you've sealed the top back up, you have a small amount of headspace there that some of that water can actually evaporate from the mix. So you can dehydrate the ice cream a little bit, and then it can find a great nucleation site on the lid where an ice crystal can attach. And once the ice crystal attaches and starts growing, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and that's where you get the knife-like crystals. Now, whenever Derek, the food science guy, started to get really technical... Eric, the culinary guy, was on the verge of cracking up. I figured that in itself was kind of interesting, and I asked him about his reactions. You're, you're greatly amused by the, the scientific jargon? Is yes. that what it is? This, this, is, this is about the point where the geek alert goes off in the kitchen, because it's the, the culinary side and the science side are so different, and it's, it's very amusing to most of us every time Derek goes into the, the geek mode and and we we understand how it works, and we and we so appreciate his expertise. But it just it's it's funny coming it, from the yeah. other side. It's I mean, a, when when I have a baked piece that I need to make sure that the sugar in it is is the right amount of sugar, so it doesn't absorb too much moisture from the ice cream during migration and in, in the freezing process or in the storage process. Yes, yeah, Derek, because you need to know. Like, so how does this? How is this going to react in six months? So Derek, you're in a you're in a unique position. You're the uh, you're the gifted but misunderstood brother in this operation. Is that is that about it? Uh, you're the smart guy that people aren't sure what you actually do, but they know what's important. What's, what's... Yeah, that that might be the case. Um, you know, uh, I have the. 
the added benefit of I can talk my way out of a lot of things just by, you know, start dropping words like nucleation and things like that. And then I can start to see the marketers and things like that start to glaze over a little bit. And then they're like, all right, he's going off onto something in little geek land there. And I'm just going to smile and nod. And, and uh, well, that gives me a nice advantage. <laughs> Derek, you have found your home. <laughs> We are Geekland. Welcome. <laughs> it's great to do this interview. Uh, it's not often that I get to do one where I get to, you know... Say nucleation and no one laughs. Exactly, yes. <laughs> What's, for both of you actually, and we don't have to talk specifically about Ben and Jerry because this is true throughout the ice cream world, what makes some ice cream better than other ice cream? Is that Does it really boil down to fat content? If you can boil anything in ice cream. On the culinary side, fat is good. Fat carries flavor. It's, it, it works for me. And it also gives you a uh, mouthfeel for your product. Uh, you're required to, to call it ice cream. The FDA says you have to have at least 10% of your product by weight has to be butter fat. So that's the bare minimum to call it ice cream. We like to go kind of above and beyond that. And it gives you a rich, besides just the flavor, it gives you a great mouthfeel to it too. So you have regular ice cream, premium ice cream, super premium ice cream. I thought it was all just how much fat's in the ice cream. Is that right? There's more than that? It is. It's, it's what's maybe not in the ice cream. It's what there's more of in the ice cream. Your supermarket ice creams probably have a lot more air in them than a super premium ice cream. You can tell that sometimes you pick up two pints of ice cream. One is three times heavier than the other. It feels that way. Exactly. And, and ours is, is usually on the heavy end because we have less air. It's more dense. It takes longer to, to soften when you pull it out of the freezer. Whereas a half gallon of supermarket ice cream, you can put a scoop in it the second you pull it out. has a lot of air in it. Probably not a lot of add-ins. We like to put in tons of big chunks. You get the same, the same type of flavor in a supermarket ice cream, just not all the big chunks, not all the big swirl patterns. You know, you don't get as much fudge. But typically a Premium ice creams will have a higher fat content because they have less air. So uh, by volume, it'll be more fat. And and probably higher fat in the base mix itself. In the base mix, okay. Derek, you are uh, you have two brothers who do the same kind of thing as you do? Yes, uh, I do. I'm the uh, middle child, and both my older brother and younger brother are food scientists. They both went to Madison like I did, and they both work for our sister company in Green Bay, Good Humor Briars both in the R&D group as well. So what what's family reunions like at your house? You know, when everybody comes for Thanksgiving, everyone's got a thermometer to check the temperature of the turkey. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, the geek alert goes off. By the way, everyone who works at Ben & Jerry's can take home three pints of ice cream every day. They also have access to the free on-site gym. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, people who take their medicine regularly have a lower risk of death, even if they're just taking a placebo. Story two, although men and women have equal online abilities, women rate their own talents for using the web as being lower than men rate their abilities. Story 3, researchers announced that they have cataloged all existing species of bacteria in what is left of the Atlantic forest of Brazil. And Story 4, an asteroid thought to be about 400 meters across, came almost as close to Earth as the moon is just after midnight Eastern Time in the U.S. on Monday. 
And your time is up. Story one is true. People who adhere to their medication schedule have a lower risk of death even if they're only taking placebos. That's according to a study in the British Medical Journal. Regular adherence to one's meds is probably a marker for healthy behavior in general. Story two is true. Women think they're poorer at online skills than men do, even though they have about the same skill level. The study is in the current issue of Social Science Quarterly. You can find it online at, well, I don't need to tell you. You can find it. And story four is true. A decent-sized asteroid, dubbed 2004XP14, did come within about 270,000 miles of Earth early Monday morning Eastern Time. It was big enough to be visible through home telescopes, although it was probably tough to hone in on, moving at 11 miles a second. All of which means that story three about researchers completing their survey of Atlantic forest bacteria in Brazil is totally bogus. Because what is true is that a research team announced in the journal Science that they estimate that probably about 13 million species of bacteria still unknown to science are living in the Atlantic forest of Brazil. The forest is down to 8% of the size it was 400 years ago. Each species of bacteria may have unique biochemistry that might be of interest in agriculture or pharmacology. You can read more in Tracy Stater's article on our website, www.siam.com news. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm John Rennie, Editor-in-Chief of Scientific American. Our magazine is now available in a digital edition. Not only does your Scientific American digital subscription include the full contents of every new printed issue, it also entitles you to access our digital archives from 1993 to the present. For more information, visit www.siamdigital.com. By the way, I was a guest on the June 21st edition of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. That's the podcast of the New England Skeptical Society, and you can check it out at www.theskepticsguide.org. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember that Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.